Welcome to Coffee and Cases, where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. My name is Allison Williams. And my name is Maggie Dameron. We will be telling stories each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning the cases will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, because, as we all know, conversation helps to keep the missing person in the public consciousness, helping to keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. Those who are listeners to our show have now heard our coverage of the history of the Miranda warning, which will be featured in the upcoming film entitled Miranda's Victim, featuring esteemed actors like Abigail Breslin, Ryan Philippe, Luke Wilson, Donald Sutherland, and so many more talented actors. In today's episode, we have the privilege of speaking with the film's writer and producer, George Kolber. Welcome, George. Good morning. How are you? Is it a morning or afternoon? It is is noon, so (laughs) right smack dab in the middle. So, George, if you would please tell our listeners just initially what drew you into the film industry in the beginning. I mean, did you always know that this is what you were destined to do? Well, uh, the answer is absolutely not. I, I, I really have a, uh, I'm, I'm on the older side. I'm not looking for another career. Uh, but I think the career found me uh, in as much as I think we were all affected by the pandemic. And I found myself at home uh, on the web looking for toilet paper and masks. Um, <laughs> in, in the background, the TV is on. And I hear somebody reading the Miranda warning. Some detective is reading somebody a Miranda warning. And I thought about it for a second. I said, you know something, I knew a guy that alleged that he worked for the state of Arizona on this case. So I started to look Lou up and I started with this U.S. Supreme Court and I found no mention of Lou. So then I went backwards to the Arizona Supreme Court uh, and again, I found no mention of Lou. However, I did find the beginnings of the story of Miranda. And I said, "Who, who is Miranda? And I looked at this guy, and this guy was a bad guy. I mean, he was not a good guy. He got a dishonorable discharge. He sexually assaulted a number of women. He was a car thief. He was uh, a robber. I, I, I mean, you know, he was just a really not a good guy. I said, well, what happened to him? You know, and and I looked at it, and I found out how he died. And I said, well, what an irony. Right. Is, you know, I mean, an ultimate irony. Uh, and then I said, but... Who was the victim? Who started this whole thing? And then I went back. Uh, I employed my niece, who was also off during the pandemic, who happens to have a doctorate in chemistry. So I know she's a good researcher. Uh, and the two of us uh, sat there. We dug through old police reports. We looked at old transcripts. We looked at all. We looked at the victim's uh, high school records, and we tracked her down. Uh, and I must tell you, um, you know, what we started to uncover was fascinating. And uh, more than anything else, I, I realized that this was an important story. Right. Uh, I wasn't looking for fame or fortune, quite frankly. I was trying to convey uh, what I think is an important story because people really didn't understand where Miranda comes from, uh, Miranda mm-hmm. writes. Uh, most think people think Miranda is some sort of a hero. Right. <laughs> or they think it's a woman. They, they really don't know. 
but um, but I hope I answered your question. I really think you that did. that's yeah. the background uh, of how we found the story. Now, when you were doing all of this research, at what point did you realize, okay, I've, I have to go straight to the source and find her? Yeah. We, uh, we, we, you know, wrote a whole script and... I realized, um, you know, after after the pandemic, when we could go outside, you know, I was able to track down her address, uh, and I said, you know what, we got to get things right. Uh, you know, we speculated on some things, but we just did not have, uh, you know, we, we we you know, you can't rely totally on transcripts to get the look and the feel of what's going on behind the scenes, what's going on, especially in uh, in Trisha's. Uh, mind uh, and what she personally had to deal with. So uh, in June of 2021, uh, I tracked her down. Actually, I tracked her down to a campground uh, and um, uh, I was able to, uh, this is a story in and of itself, but I was able to talk to her. And quite frankly, she didn't want to talk to me. Uh, Mm -hmm. The good news is I had my wife with me and she was more open since uh, my wife was with me and more willing to talk. Okay. Yeah. I, well, that was going to be my next question is why you think she was finally ready to tell her story after so long? She wasn't. Right. <laughs> she, she really wasn't ready. You were I good mean, at the art of persuasion. Yeah. We, yeah well, you know, what happened is we surprised her. And she kept this a secret for 60 years, even from her family. Uh, so what happened is that um, with the help of her daughter, I actually tracked her daughter down first, who said, come on, follow me to the campground. And I followed her to the campground uh, where we were able to meet with Trish. It was a total surprise. But what I said was, listen, uh, I wrote a story about you. And I'm going to tell the story whether or not you like it. I want you to understand something. You're a hero. Right. And this is an important story. So I really need to have your input in order to tell the story the right way. And uh, she was reluctant. We sat there and talked for about 45 minutes, an hour. Uh, And then uh, I got her to agree to a follow-up interview. And we had another discussion for about three hours. So uh, uh, she came around. But I think the when the family finally found out what the story was about, especially her two daughters, they also realized how important it was. And uh, and they started to encourage her to even tell the story. Yeah. And, you know, there's a I won't ruin it for our listeners, but there's a scene in the movie that gets to the crux of what you were just talking about in terms of heroic action. And that's probably my favorite scene in the film. Um, and I, I just have to say, I mean, I love the fact that you you shift the script to focus on the victim because I feel like it's such a shame that Miranda is the name that's remembered rather than this hero that was his victim. Well, you know, it, it's interesting, uh, and, and that's the first thought that a lot of people have. Why did they name the law Miranda? You know, he's not the victim. Uh, and uh, Trish will be the first to tell you that she thinks the rule is good, the Miranda rights is good. She just thinks it's named after a bad person. Right. <laughs> and I asked her, I said, well, what should we call it? She goes, well, what's what's wrong with just civil rights? Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So 
since this film is based on a true story, what guidelines or special care do you feel like you need to follow as a writer and as a producer to be accurate? Well, uh, you know, the story had to be told accurately. So, you know, again, we looked at the transcripts. We did an awful lot of research uh, to make sure, you know, and, and people say, well, what did you dramatize and so forth? Actually, you know, uh, it's Michelle who did, you know, all the drama. Uh, the story was there. Uh, and um, the story is pretty accurate. You know, of course, you had to take a little bit of license in a couple places. But uh, Michelle did something extraordinary, which was, uh, and I mean Michelle Danner, of course. Um, right. She was able to, you know, figure out which are the right actors and convince them that they were there, uh, that, that their role was important. It didn't take much convincing. Uh, I was going to say, yeah. yeah. The, the actors, uh, for most of them, it was like a passion project, quite frankly. Right. Understood the importance of it. And uh, and they it was a passion project for, for all of them. So uh, I'm pleased to say, I think it shows. But it's Michelle who actually brought it out uh, of all of them. Right. What, if any, were your key challenges in creating this film? Yeah, it's, um, well, first, the first challenge was finding the right director. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I interviewed a, a number of directors. Uh, I knew two things. One, it had to be a female director, because I don't believe a, a male could possibly comprehend the pain uh, that a woman went through in the 1960s, especially. Right. Um, and uh, I, M Michelle flew out to New Jersey to meet with me, not once, but twice. Uh, she showed her commitment uh, and she, she understood the story. And she said to me that she had to be the one to tell the story. And I believed her. Um, right. and, uh, so that was the first thing that we, we had to make sure. The other thing is, you know, this is Arizona in the 1960s. Now, um, I mean, I don't know if your viewers know, but I'm, I'm on the other side of 70. Um, and I remember the 1960s. It was a passion for me. It was so good to relive going back and visit a time period that I, uh, I knew and understood. Right. Uh, but you know, uh, also, but you have to find the architect. You have to have the background. We had to transport everybody back into the 1960s and not only into the 1960s, but Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, and, um, you know, we visited a lot of locations. We went to Phoenix. Phoenix was not going to work out mm -hmm. because it modernized. It changed. It didn't even look like itself in the 1960s. Right. Um, but uh, some commissioner from New Jersey uh, had just recently passed the the, the TV film and industry commission had just passed some incredible, um, incentives in New Jersey. And when I started looking at it, I said, Hey, why don't we shoot it in New Jersey? Uh, and then I looked around and I said, well, if we're going to shoot it in New Jersey, why not in my backyard? So <laughs> we, we shot it throughout Monmouth County, New Jersey. And I've got to tell you something. Um, uh, we knew where all the older buildings were. We knew the Antique Motoring Club of Monmouth County provided a lot of vehicles. Uh, we were able to identify churches. We were able to, to identify an old police and courthouse that was about to be knocked down. 
Um, wow. You know, we used Monmouth University, uh, uh, which has some incredibly historic buildings uh, that they permitted us to use. Uh, and we created a wonderful background for the U.S. Supreme Court, for the uh, Pinella Court, um, and uh, where the second trial took place. Uh, it was just wonderful. And I was so delighted to be able to shoot it right here in New Jersey, certainly in my background, my backyard, excuse me. And, um, you know, so, but getting all of those pieces together, I got it. This is the first time I ever produced the movie. Uh, it was daunting, um, you right. know, all, all the locations and, you know, getting the cast and the crew. Thankfully, Michelle has been there, done that. And she had a team of people that uh, were able to be assembled. And uh, so not only did she bring the actors, but she also brought a team of people that helped produce uh, and film the movie. That's wonderful. It, it truly sounds like it was just a community effort. And, and I love that. Yeah, that, that, that's an understatement. Um, uh, last night, we had a, uh, a special screening at Monmouth University. And the, the turnout was incredible. And all the community people that uh, were so inspirational and supportive um, uh, showed up. And uh, they just uh, actually cheered <laughs> in the movie, which was a little bit bad, which was a little embarrassing at times. But uh, uh, I must tell you, we live in a very unique community. Uh, I'm pleased to say, as everybody came together uh, to make sure this happened the right way. That's wonderful. And you must have been, I can only imagine, just in awe of the acting talent for each one of those. I, 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 you couldn't have picked a better cast in my mind. Yeah. Well, I, I, I've got to tell you something. Um, you know, I knew they do a good job, but the, the level of performance uh, that they they did, I, I think was extraordinary. I do think that, you know, listen, I'm not on any kind of nominating committee, but I think any number one of these acts actors uh, could be nominated for anything, especially Abigail Breslin and Ryan yes. Felipe uh, and, uh, and I think uh, Michelle. Uh, you know, we were in an awful lot of uh, film festivals and uh, we were very successful uh, in winning and garnering an awful lot of uh, votes for all those particular categories. So, um, you know, we're very fortunate, uh, you know, again, both the most important thing that is that this is an important story that people need to know and understand. Right. And, and I'm just hoping that it garners the attention that it deserves. So what, you know, absolutely. What would you say was I guess your ultimate message or goal when you, I know you wanted to tell the story, but was there, I guess, some sort of message that you truly want to get across? You, you know, that, that it's interesting. And what I want people to do is to decide for themselves. Uh, you know, this is sort of social justice versus, uh, you know, uh, victims of uh, sexual assault. Uh, and which is more important. Right. Uh, I am not going, I think in everybody's own mind, they, they have their own sense of values. I think they're both important. Which one is more important? I'm, I leave that up to the viewer. Right. And I guess that leads to my follow-up question of, of what effect do you feel the film will have on what we obviously can see is really a still, sadly, contentious topic 
of sexual assault for so many and the Me Too movement. And I was thinking about this specifically with a statistic that you end the the film with. So what effect do you think that the film will have on those conversations? Well, um, I, I think the most important thing is that, you know, in in the 1960s, there was no infrastructure in place uh, to help women uh, of, of sexual violence. Uh, they, the doctors were all male. There were no rape kits. Uh, the police were all male. Uh, and you know, uh, you women, you know, it was a lot of this was just, you know, so what, you know, and I think we, we, uh, we touch on the fact that perhaps, uh, Trish's mom, Ziola, who loves her so much, right? but she does not want her to experience what she experienced in the past. And the only thing women could do at that time was suppress it just to, to let it go, you know, let it go and move on with your life and don't make mention of it because, you know, it may affect your future. And, um, so, Today, we don't have that situation. I mean, maybe we do, uh, but there are certainly more support groups available. Um, and in fact, we end with uh, the founder of The Rain, which is uh, uh, Rape, uh, Abuse, Incest National Network. And, uh, and last night, uh, Scott Berkowitz, the founder in 1994, uh, was up and he moderated a panel discussion that we had at Monmouth University. And um, the statistics are, since 1994, 4.2 million calls were made to the National Sexual Abuse Hotline, mm -hmm. and he now averages 300,000 a year. And that network ties into uh, help that uh, a network all around the country uh, where people are waiting just to help victims, guide them, and deal with the, um, uh, the trauma uh, of uh, uh, sexual assault. Uh, the, uh, what we did also last night was pretty unique in as much as we introduced Trish, the real Trish, to the world for the first time. Oh, wow. And, uh, uh, and I, I got to tell you, it was very emotional for everybody in the crowd, um, the actors especially, uh, to see the courage of this woman who after 60 years comes out and encourages the story to be told. Right. Um, you know, we, we, we had a, uh, uh, a different subtitle that we were playing around with when we were trying to figure out how to market the movie. And, uh, and one of the subtitle was before me too, there was Trish. So, um, right. you know, but you know, times are different today. Um, there are teams in place to help, victims of sexual assault. And we just encourage everybody to report it. Reporting it will stop it someplace else. And, uh, you know, chances are if somebody's an assaulter once, you know, he's probably, he will assault more and more times. If we stop him now, it will definitely stop some in the future that we'll never even know about. But that's right. what's important. Report it, report it, report it.
I, I really like that uh, subtitle that you were toying around with, with the before me too, there was Trish, because I, I think that gets to really her status as a hero, because currently there's a, there is a lot of, I don't want to say a lot, because there are many people who are out there suffering and they feel like they're alone. But there there are support groups, like you said. There are um, institutions in place to provide uh, information and, and help. But before that, here is Trish, who is really kind of facing this battle alone, especially with some of the people around her in what should be her support group, who, because of society at the time, are saying, oh, no, suppress this. No, let's not you know, follow through. And it really was, you know, her personal conviction to continue on. Yeah, no doubt. And then she, um, you know, after the second trial, she just went on with her life. And as she said, what choice did she have? She just had to move forward. Uh, There was nobody there to help her. Uh, And, uh, you know, uh, that's exactly what she did. But she she did move away from uh, Phoenix area and relocated herself to a couple places, ending up uh, near West Point uh, in New York. Wonderful. I'm just I'm so glad that that you were able to get in contact with her. And even if it took a little bit of convincing that she she wanted to take part in the film. I, I, I feel like it just lends the message and the historical accuracy, just so much more credence to have her involved. I'm delighted. And, and you know, the other thing that's interesting is not only her support, but the support her, of her family. And um, uh, if you remember, we had the wedding scene and a lot of her family members were in the background in the wedding scene. Uh, oh, wonderful. Yeah. And, and one of the things is you'll see Josh Bowman after the wedding scene comes out and kisses somebody. Well, that's really Trish that, that he kisses. So pay oh, attention. That's amazing. Little little tidbit there for our, our listeners to be looking for. So in, in terms of the film, obviously it's set in the 60s. There are lots of cultural references to both film and music. So did you think about when you were including those, I guess, the symbolic meaning behind the particular films and the songs that you included in the film as it relates to Trish, as it relates to the court case? Yeah, yes. And um, I don't know if you noted this, but uh, You Don't Own Me, which was made famous by Leslie Gore. Um, is uh, the message that, uh, you know, Trish, we give Trish to say or, you know, as she's uh, getting ready to go into the courthouse and, uh, and testify for the second time. But you'd be interested to know that You Don't Own Me uh, was actually sung by Abigail Breslin. <laughs> really? Yep. So, wow. She, you didn't realize she had such a great voice. I didn't. <laughs> Well, she is definitely multi-talented. Yes, she is. So, yeah, and the, even the choices of, of the films, obviously, To Kill a Mockingbird resonates with, with this uh, film. Yeah, no, no doubt. Uh, you know, and, and Saturday night at the movies, you know, as uh, Marie Enos is, or Ziola is pulling up in front of the movie theater, you know, all of those were really, uh, we're, we're trying to make you feel the correct emotion at that proper scene. And we think we captured a lot of, you know, the timing, 
and, and a sense and the feeling of the 1960s. Uh, again, you know, um, I grew up in the 60s uh, <laughs> and it was great for me. I just loved it. That's awesome. Were there any uh, funny anecdotes or, or anything like that from the filmmaking process? <laughs> Too many. Uh, no, well, no. <laughs> I'll give you a couple, though. All right? Okay. What I talked to you about, and people can watch out for this. You know, Marie Enos is pulling up in front of the theater. Now, she's pulling up in a 1955 Ford Fairlane. Uh, and, you know, I didn't realize, but she just got in the car, and they told her to drive up there. And they did. I said, but she didn't practice driving the car. Understand something. A 1955 Ford Fairlane does not have power brakes. Oh, no. <laughs> I said, what are you doing? It was too late. She had already started. The same thing happened with Josh Bowman when he pulls up in front of the uh, the hospital. And Josh is a Britisher. Uh, so the steering wheel's on the other side on top oh, of her. No. <laughs> but uh, I, I think one of the scenes that I, I, I remember, and, and I guess uh, Michelle and Emily and Abigail will probably get mad at me. Um, but uh, one of the scenes is that you see a scene where um, uh, where Abigail is ironing um, in the house. And I walk in on the scene and I see, I say, you know, is, is Abigail left-handed? And they said, no, why? I said, well, you got the ironing board the wrong way. Here are the three women that had no idea <laughs> how, to, how to position an ironing board. So, uh, you know, those are the kinds of things. There were a lot of great things, uh, right. you know, a lot of great anecdotes. And I smile all the time. <laughs> yeah, because now now we just, you know, throw our clothes in a dryer to get the wrinkles out. I mean, that's, that's the current uh, yeah. ironing process. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, yeah, now, so, you know, listen, uh, it was a great experience for me. I loved it. Um, you know, uh, I think the most important thing is that it sends a great message. Uh, and, you know, I'm into important messages. You know, I, I said, listen, I can't do fantasy. I can't do fiction. I can't create worlds. Uh, I just know that the people that we used, the characters, excuse me, you know, Cooley, uh, Detective Cooley, uh, John Flynn, they are all real characters uh, and we were are very well researched. Um, uh, unbelievable. Judge Wren, you know, a lot of the, the, the script came from the transcripts, uh, you know, that we, we dug out. So um, I can tell you, this was a passion project for everybody. Uh, and certainly for me and, and my niece and everybody that sort of worked on this thing, you could see they understood it and loved it. Right. One final question for you, George. What kind of legacy do you hope to leave in the film industry? You know, it's, it's as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm on the north side of 70 here. I just wanted to make sure this story got told. You know, I, I, I've had a reasonably successful business career. I could understand, you know, if I was 30, 40 or 50, that, you know, I would seek fame and fortune and, and, and you know, want to build on the legacy. But, you know, I, I, I just think that the story is more important than any person, uh, including me. Uh, and I must tell you that I just, um, uh, you know, I, I do have one other story I want to tell. Sure. But I, I wasn't looking for leaving a legacy. That was not my intention. Yeah. 
So thank you so much, George, for joining me for this interview. And listeners, please make sure that you check out the film Miranda's Victim. It is both powerful and important. And to close, would you mind to please tell everyone when and where they can watch Miranda's Victim? Well, um, I wish they would tell me. (laughs) (laughs) I know we're in five major cities uh, on October October the 6th, uh, Los Angeles, New York being two of them. I think Philadelphia is one of them. Uh, They haven't informed me about the other two, but it will be a video on demand uh, also uh, on October the 6th. So the best I can say is, you know, look it up. It'll be on websites. It'll be out there. But please, uh, please, by all means, you know, go and see it if you can. I think that there's a lot of value to seeing it on a big screen. Uh, and the sound, uh, we really went out of our way to make sure we try to capture the feel and the look uh, of the 60s. And that's best on the big screen. But if you can't get it on the big screen, by all means, please download it. Absolutely. And we will get that information. We will post it in our show notes. So if our listeners aren't in one of those major cities where it is showing on the big screen, they can have access and know exactly where to go to view it. Thank you so much for uh, having this conversation with me today. And I'm excited to get feedback from our listeners because I know that they're, they're really going to see the importance of the film as well. Well, thank you for honoring me uh, with this interview, and uh, I look forward to hearing you some more. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. Again, please like and join our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Twitter at Cases Coffee, on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast, or you can always email us suggestions to coffeeandcasespodcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll We'll see see you you next week. week.